If you've ever wondered what goes through the minds of CEOs that just raised investment capital and are growing a small business to a medium business, then you should listen to this episode. We'll be talking all things social media marketing, brand positioning, and artificial intelligence. Listen on to find out more. Hey everyone, I'm Darren Lake, the audio content manager here at Medigy. Welcome to Forward Thinking, a podcast by Medigy. In this series, we speak with inspirational business owners, brands, and marketing experts to learn from their experiences on the front line and uncover what it takes to build a world-class business. This is a cross-release episode with our awesome friends Neural and the Uncommon Podcast down in Melbourne, Australia. Medigy CEO and co-founder David Fairful was interviewed by host Jordan Michaelides. Since Medigy is a marketing platform and tool for SMEs, we really get under the hood of all things business, tech, and marketing. David goes deep in a few areas, including artificial intelligence not being a fad, social media marketing predictions, surprises from getting customer insights, the positioning of Medigy as a platform in an already established industry, Medigy's purpose, roadmap, and timeline, lessons from David's past career experience as the managing partner at We Are Social, his morning routine, best purchase under $200, and so much more. This was originally produced and aired in March 2021 by the Uncommon Podcast, so we'll start with their introduction. Hi, my name is David Fairfall, and this is Uncommon. Uncommon is a production by Neural, an agency that helps both brands and talent tell their story. To learn more, just visit neural.com. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com. My guest this week, David Fairfall, CEO and co-founder of Medigy and former managing partner of We Are Social. Probably the trickiest part about your research was finding some inside jokes or something to run with. Bonnie was quite handy. <laughs> I heard you may be a tough mudder guy. I was a long time ago. That's a right. long time ago. <laughs> I don't. Th- I don't. Well, do you grow out of that? I think at the end of the day, you sort of do it for a while. I really enjoyed it, but yeah, uh, it's a phase. I think you go through. L- love the challenge of it. So either you're obs- you become obsessed with it. Yeah, it's sort of like um, that, and I would say. CrossFit became the trend. God, how long ago was that? That must have been at least six, seven years ago or something yeah, like that. That's seven sounds right to me. So I, I had a lot of friends doing the Spartan races and most dropped off. I mean, look, with COVID, I can't even remember a time where people were doing them. No, exactly. And so. I, I do wonder, um, I wonder whether they'll come back. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I think maybe it was a phase two, right? So. <laughs> Everybody got it out of their system. At the end of the day, they're quite grueling, right? So they're not yeah. the faint-hearted and they don't really work with a entrepreneur's lifestyle, right? So not, yeah. not really. Well, the thing now is that um, if, if I think about the people I know in this industry and the new sort of aerobic obsession they have, it would probably be like your David Goggins of the world and doing um, these crazy running challenges uh, and then like uh, not ultra marathons but – uh, there's these marathons that are really popular in the US now that are just insane where they do like 250 miles or something like that in a day. And and you've got to, like you're running for like 24 plus hours. So you're not really sleeping or anything like that. I had a mate recently who did, I believe it was four by four by two. That's a David Goggins thing. And you run 
for four miles, which is six and a half kilometers every four hours for two days straight. No, four by four by 48 is what it is. Yeah, right. Um, and he's doing this in preparation for running the entirety of Wilson's prom, which is some ungodly amount of kilometers, like 60 or 75 kilometers or something like that. So, um, I'm tired yeah. just thinking about it. So, yeah, <laughs> but I, I am not an aerobic, like my family, we are, you know, stocky Greek wrestler types. Like we just don't, you know, us and running is not a thing that marries well together. Um, but I heard about a Spartan race in Greece where they, you know, do the whole marathon thing and it's literally like 48 hours and you don't stop. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, Absolutely ridiculous. Stuff, right? So, um, All right. Tell me about your earliest memory as a kid. What did you think you were going to be? Uh, I think a fighter pilot. So it was probably okay. typical sort of kid dream. So, and then I sort of... Uh, Went away from that and started thinking about being in business. And I don't know why, because it's not in my family at all. It was just what I imagined I was going to do when I grew up. So maybe it yeah, was right. sort of 70s going into the 80s. It was aspirational to be successful in business. So, again, a trend of it. So, Who was the aspirational? Like this is, We're talking like the Alan Bond uh, Skase era. Regrettably, you are. And it's not Skase. <laughs> it's probably someone like Alan Bond yeah. before, before the gloss came off, right? So yeah. <laughs> the, the Aussie who came from nowhere, he could do whatever they wanted and take on the world and seemingly make it work. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think so. And, and then the gloss came off the whole thing. And, you know, my view of it today is you want to be great at what you do, but you want to do it for the right reasons, right? So Yeah. Okay. So, so it, was, it was probably an idea that, that permeated in the zeitgeist for you at that point in time. I, I wonder, do you think there's like certain personality traits that you have that aligned with that, like, do you find that you're a particularly open and creative person, but you're very structured? Yeah, I'm definitely creative and strategic, or I like to think that I am, because I'm always thinking, how do you solve the problem you're on now, but how do you get to really where you want to be? And I'm trying to always plan a few steps ahead. But in balance to that, I think, you know, the nature of an entrepreneur is you need to be able to get in and do the detail as well. So roll up your sleeves and do the hard work. I don't enjoy that. I'm a more of a creative thinker than a detailed person, but you just have to be disciplined about that, right, and, and really get in and solve the stuff. And we're building a deep tech product now, so there's a lot of detail in it. So you just have to be disciplined at doing the hard work to do that. Yeah, so, I think that's sort of what differentiates an artist versus an entrepreneur. Uh, you've, had, you've got to have this weird balance of being somewhat conscientious but also not too structured that you can't think openly. Yeah. Um, I think I was quite lucky in that regard in that I have a mother who's ultra open and creative and a father who's very conscientious. So I picked up traits from both of them. Yeah, that's um, handy. So it was, it, it's worked out well for myself. And I guess it's something that I've noticed when I interview a lot of people that when you get to more of that entrepreneurial side of things, you, you just have to have some sort of structure in your life. Um, yeah, and most that I've sort of come to know that have been really successful are disciplined about that. Like yeah. it's, you, many have got to force themselves, but they've got that will and that determination to be disciplined. And, yeah, and, and it's off the back of an inquisitive mind, right? Again, most entrepreneurs are inquisitive. They want to solve a problem that nobody else has really solved and they're absolutely determined to make that happen and that's the driving force most often. Yeah, and some people are more structured than others. Like my dad is one of those types that like he can be up at 6, uh, 5, 5 a.m. even to exercise. to the t- Like he doesn't miss exercise at all in the morning at all. Whereas I, that is one of those components of 
entrepreneurship I really struggle with, but it's, you know, a necessity because oftentimes when you're running a business, anything past 9am, you've really got a lot of people asking things for you, from you. So to have that time to yourself to think about things and, and do deeper work is really important. I know you studied, you did the BCom at ANU Deployment Financial Planning. I think you had actually a really similar background to myself and a similar pivot. So you worked in finance as your first job out of uni. And then three, by three years later, you're a brave group, which was not completely different, but at the end of the day, it was high-end digital e-commerce sort of products. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it was I, a big change. I, I was curious, what was the thing that drew you away from finance and more towards media? Um, look, I suppose I did start with Pricewaterhouse, you know, many years ago off the back of the BCom and was a CFO of a small public company and I found it fascinating. And I always, that was meant to be like a starting point and a great set of skills, but not really where I would go. And I had this um, opportunity to get involved with the with Brave, which is really a comms business and been going for a little while, but got involved. And in fact, uh, I ended up marrying my partner. So <laughs> my wife and I built it over 10 years and, and eventually sold it to a public company called Powerland. Um, but, but really, really um, fascination for me was in growing the business and it was really early into, you know, tech in, in a context of marketing because it was the, the web was just really getting started and we were building, you know, digital media solutions, both multimedia and, and early web-based work. So it was just fascinating and nobody was doing it. It was the, the challenge of doing something a bit different and out of the ordinary and solving a new frontier maybe. So so were you one of those types that, so for me, I did that background in finance because it was things that I was good at. I was good at that conscientious stuff. I liked accounting at high school and then you do it and because, you know, Greek parents, they encourage you to do a profession, accounting, banking, finance, lawyer, something like that. And uh then I get into the work, workforce and I start to realize actually it's sort of stifling that creative component that I've got. Mindless so I wonder if it was, <laughs> pardon? Mindless might be the word. Yeah, so. mindless. Like I remember doing my grad, not grad role, I did like an internship at a mid-tier accounting firm and just thinking like, oh no, this is not, what have I done type yeah. thing. And yeah. I, you know, I still had a year plus working in the finance space, but it gradually sort of pivoted away from it in, you know, being in finance to selling to finance to, um, you know, selling marketing sort of sales products to finance to working in, mar- working in marketing and sales. So it was a gradual progression. I guess for yourself, do you think that was the driving force behind it is this sort of potential sense of boredom? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's two things, right? If you're in a, an accounting firm, you've make, got to make a decision. Am I going to do the hard yards and go on to be a partner? And that is a hard slog for a long period of time. Ultimately, yeah, a lot of success if you get to that, that elite level and, you know, quality of lifestyle, but you're still doing the same thing. You're doing it for a very long time. And I think I pretty quickly decided I want more out of working and, and challenges in life and, and what I'd want to do in a business than just to do that because you're pretty much following somebody else's formula, right? And I think if you're naturally an entrepreneur, you go, you know what, I, I don't need somebody else's formula. I'm happy to, you know, take my own path and do something a bit different. It'll be more risky, but ultimately it'll be a lot more fulfilling. And I, I think that's been true. I think it would have been mindless and no disrespect to accounting firms because they're amazing at what they do, but it's for a certain type of person that wants to follow that process and do the hard yards and get there, right? And if not, you get out of there early and get on with doing something else. And that was really the path I took. 
Well, that's get you know that goes back to you and your personality. I guess if you're an open, creative person, it's just something that you you would have always struggled with, early, you know, early on. I, again, that's something that I had, um, and you know, it was it was interesting looking at your you know obviously pretty impressive CV, but you know that sort of stuff doesn't matter when you're an entrepreneur. But the experience you had, I mean, you hold you held numerous growth positions in the digital comm space. So I've got here, obviously, Brave acquired by Powerland. That took up a decent chunk of time. Yeah. Uh, McCann Erickson. So you were APAC Regional Director for e-business CRM, web-based marketing projects. This was the very early days of the, the internet. This is 2000s, I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, various consulting projects. Uh, I, I was just curious, you know, what to you, when you went to We Are Social and then, developing Metagy today, what seems like the biggest principle you've pulled from that time of your life? Um, Look, I think if you choose to be in digital, probably you accept that that's just going to keep changing all the time. So as, as an entrepreneur, perhaps you think, well, I've got to keep moving to the next frontier. That's where the, the real opportunity is both the challenge and the money. And, and where social is a great example. Like I got, got involved in there and 2011 as a partner. Uh, the business has started in the UK in 2008, but really running a social agency at that point or growing a global social agency was still a novelty. But by 2014, we're in the process where it started to mature. We'd built good businesses around the world and, and I was a partner in the Australian one and we got to a fairly mature point, like a 55-person team. And everybody collectively was going, well, okay, Social agency was the frontier in 2008 through to now, but that's becoming the norm. There's a proliferation of social. So how does the agency evolve going forward? And we got an opportunity to sell it, and, and it was a process that we sold it to Blue Focus of uh, that's right. China, which is the largest media group in China. And so you had to do an earnout as part of that, but I came to a juncture where it was either keep doing that or really go off and do something else. And we already had the idea for doing Metagy, which was really, from my perspective, the next frontier in taking, you know, we had, we had a, a massive proprietary data set because we'd been doing social, 500 people around the world doing social for brands. And so we, we had this fantastic proprietary data set. Could we leverage that and really use the, the advent of machine learning to turn, you know, what we were doing as a creative process strategically in, into a, a machine-driven strategy for SMEs that, that would deliver that solution for a group of customers that just couldn't afford to buy strategy, right? So, again, fantastic technical challenge, but also changing the way that whole business function and the marketing industry works, right? So, yeah, we are social. When I think about it, there's really only two agencies that became global that developed in a similar way. And I would probably put it as uh, Vayner Media, although they went more down the route of full service as opposed to um, a social first structure. And I think because of that, we are social really became known as the global social agency. Um, I, I guess I was intrigued, you know, we'll get to the, this component in a while, but I, I get a sense the social CRM idea in your head is been a big thing since being at We Are Social. I, I'm intrigued working in agency land and, and going through that earnout process. What to you sort of seems like, you know, for someone who is an agency owner like myself today, what, what was the best and worst thing in hindsight from that? time of your career? Hmm. 
I think, you know, whenever you sell, you're letting go of your baby, right? And, and ultimately it's usually before you finished everything you wanted to do because you want to do it at the right stage of its growth path. Um, so I think letting go is, is part of it, but it's also scary, right? You think I've become comfortable in this environment. I've been in McCann's, I've been in We Are Social. It was a pretty, you could do a lot and it was pretty comfortable and we were forging on to do something completely unknown and completely unproven. So there's a huge degree of discomfort and, you know, rising above those, you know, personal feelings around, you know, do, do I jump out and do something completely different? Yeah. Well, that, that was an interesting thing. I mean, I know that one of the notes I had here was leaving We Are Social. And when you left, like I said, biggest global footprint, you got a family with kids. They're not as young now, obviously, but then they would have been younger. Um, you know, there's always this quote that Elon Musk says that entrepreneurship is sort of like chewing on broken glass and looking into the, staring into the abyss. Yeah. I, I mean, I had this realization a while ago that, um, that would have been the time where people would have still seen AI as a fad and not a trend. I had this recently with TikTok because we we manage TikTok talent and an Instagram manager said to me that they don't take it seriously. And so I, I was curious for you at that point in time, when was that that realization that this is not a fad, it is a trend? And it's it's such a trend that I need to take this risk to go choose some broken glass? Yeah, I think it was circa 2015, maybe 14. I'd already sort of realised that because we were doing some experimentation with it at that point and we could realize, we're realising that at the end of the day we're doing stuff and, and I think AI is the perfect application for marketing, right, because it is about the ability to be able to process large volumes of data and make decisions on that data faster than a human ever could, right? You can ingest more data and analyse that at a rate that no human can. And and that gives you the ability then to be truly creative off the back of that, right? Because you've got the insight long before someone fiddling around with reporting and thinking about it, you know, was going to do it. And, and I look back, we used to charge customers $20,000 to do this massive report and it would be historical data for sort of six months ago. And you go, there was a fantastic opportunity on this particular topic back then, right? And, and it's just too late to act on it, right, because it's past. We're analysing that data. Like, I, we know if a piece of content has worked. If it's going to work, it works in the first two hours. We know about it as it's working, and we can tell a customer with very simple logic, this is what you do. It is trending. You can leverage that now. If, if you wait for, if it's on Facebook, for example, get the insights three days later, that opportunity is gone because the, the organic driver, whatever was making it work, has disappeared, right? So historically, there's no point going back to try and solve it. That's an application where just the human can't do it. But with that knowledge, the human can be so much more creative to deliver a fantastic outcome, just driving a naturally occurring event, right? Yeah. Like, because I was wondering why go the route of not just creating an AI-driven agency versus a SaaS product? And I get a sense that the sort of, you know, in one of your bios, there was this discussion around the idea of a social CRM. It seemed to me, I don't know if you'd agree, but it seemed to me like a really important idea to you at, in that era because if you think about it, you built this agency and the agency was social focused and you could see that the world was going social focused, but there still isn't really, there still really isn't CRMs that intertwine well with social. 
and that are social first. So I guess I'm curious why go down the platform route versus, you know, selling insights or agency route? Is it that it's more scalable? Definitely more scalable. I mean, you understand as an agency, you know, it's about you've, you've got to win the work, you've got to execute the work, you've got to build a team to do it. It's very time-consuming and the amount of leverage you get off the back of that is only ever going to be so much, right? And and there's elements of stress and risk to the execution quality and, and continuity and all the rest of it, as opposed to building a product which, from my perspective, it's still there's still risk and and, and you know pressure and hassle in doing that, but the leverage off the back of that to service you know X amount more customers and solve a global problem is a lot more upside in that, right? And yes, it's a bigger challenge, but the upside ultimately is significantly greater. Yeah, Let, let's just jump back quickly to the social focus. I know that actually your first gig in this space was at an oil and gas vertical focused platform, the oil yep. community. Yeah. Um, and this is before we are social and the managing partner role. What did you see that others didn't at that time? Because this was like, this is really early. This is when Facebook would have only just been kicking off, or yeah. even MySpace. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, we were trying to build a community. So the idea was right. The industry vertical wasn't right. So um, it was an interesting experiment because we we're trying to basically do that early logic around building a community where individuals would talk and congregate and, and share knowledge, etc. The challenge was in that particular industry vertical, and it's probably true of many others, they didn't actually want to talk. It was quite, you know, it was all these trade secrets around the way they do things and not talking to each other and sharing knowledge because the organisations they worked for were fierce, fiercely competitive, right? So yeah. they were actually paranoid to talk to their to you know, peers in other organisations. So fundamental problem with users, logic, very, very solid. So just couldn't execute. So did that t- teach you a lot about positioning or um, understanding go-to-market strategy for the potential clients a bit better, do you think, in hindsight? Yeah, I think definitely understanding your customer's true purpose and, and what they're prepared to do. So I learned a lot about, you know, doing more research on a on a wider scale. We did a little bit of, you know, industry research, but nowhere near enough to really understand, you know, were individuals going to execute in the way that we thought. So I learned a lot about that. And and that, that I think, has uh, held me in good stead with what we're doing in this business now because we probed and delved far further into the logic before we got started. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the interesting things when I look at positioning um, and, and we'll get to that in a moment because I think that you guys have done that really well in knowing how to get to your end user. So let's talk Metagy, obviously founded 2015. You got to, you had two co-founders, one who's no longer involved in the business, but your CTO still is. It's so funny with marketing tech because it's one of those SaaS products that's often sprinkled with the beauty beautiful layers of marketing that you never really get a sense of what is actually being offered. And I find that only there's only really a few products in the industry. I'd say War Chest from Mutiny Group is one and probably yours where you get a real sense as to what you're actually getting. You know, you, it, you can see what the label says and what the product does. And from the limited time I was able to demo the product, it seems that essentially you're building, like you said, a an AI or a piece of machine learning that can gradually learn and provide insights, recommendations, strategies, speed up that human process on accounts, essentially. And particularly accounts that don't, that need it the most, and it's a particular need because they don't currently get access to it. Correct. Um, 
Well, I, I was curious, what are the primary zones and data points that, because, you know, there's this reference to 25 million different data points a day or something to that ilk. What, what are the fundamental points that you that you see Metagy looking at on a daily basis for each account? Yeah, well, look, I mean, that's a quite a broad, you know, sweeping statement in terms of amount of data sources, right? But, but if, you, if you look at the logic, like there's, there's 1.6 million um, media sites, right? So they all drive organisational conversation, trending conversation, what topics are people talking about? So they're all indicators and, and there's a lot of logic around if it's in the media now, it'll be happening in social media in three, four, five hours, right, depending on the nature of it. So they're indicative drivers. There's the general behaviour and, and social behaviour of consumers and brands. And so we're ingesting all of that and doing analysis around that. Um, there's a whole range of, you know, sort of if you look at search trends and all of the things that come out of, say, an environment like Google, what are people looking for, how are they looking for it, where are they looking for it. So we're really considering and analysing all of those and trying to get to a logical point where if someone wants to talk about something, what's the predictive logic for how well that is going to work in the coming few hours or days or weeks, right, and helping them understand how to really plan and execute something that's going to you know, we're not, we're not looking for everything to be a blockbuster. It's just incremental improvement all the time. So little micro moments that improve. And we're looking for 2x to 3x performance improvement every quarter, right? So that's just through consistent behaviour and those little moments where you, you do things better because you're writing a general conversational trend or something that's occurring outside of your brand that you're not aware of that our data system can analyse and then turn into an insider or a recommendation, right? So, yeah, that was one of the things that I was intrigued by from a tech point of view. I mean, it's one of those hard topics, AI and machine learning, to chat about. There's various things from uh, vision-based AI to logic-based AI, which is looking at data points. I was more curious how much of this system is a black box versus a curated piece of machine learning. Do you guys find that you are you are focusing on certain zones, let's say, for the AI to to learn on, or is most things outcome focused and it's just a black box and you have no idea what's what's going on under the hood? Uh, I suppose there's two ways to answer that. Do do we know what's going on under the hood? Yes, I think so. Does a customer know? Generally, in many cases, not. But but we try and combine the insight and the recommendation with an extending learning solution, right? Because we're trying to build their confidence as a marker, not just execute, but understand why, because that also aids their creativity, right? If they understand why something is going to work, then they're going to execute the creative or the detailed side of running an ad or creating a piece of content or running a campaign in a more effective way. So we try and couple, here's the idea, here's the how and the why, and this is an article or a video to watch that will help you understand how to do that better. So we're trying to fuse those two together. In, in terms of the AI, I mean, it's really, it's a set of, um, you know, micro components and we're, bring, we're building an end-to-end -end solution and we're, we're trying to be really smart and use other providers' AI. There's a lot of stuff in the AWS stack. We don't reinvent the wheel. We partner with other companies that have got great AI and I'll give you a good example. We've got a partnership with a, with a group in the US called Shotzer, which is a video and image analysis solution. They've got a an AI solution for analysing metadata. So we can give a, a customer a recommendation on an image or a video that will work better based upon the topic that they're talking about. And then we, we 
have a partnership off the back of that with Getty Images, which is the largest media group in the world. I think it's 300 million pieces of media. So we can pull uh, an image through that's appropriate or five images and make a recommendation based on creating this ad, these five pieces of content will work better as part of your creative. And, and you can buy that through our product online faster and quicker than you or cheaper than you can buy directly from Getty. So it's like a win-win and it's using AI to aid that creative process because you don't have to go off to the, the media library and search for it and look at 8 million images. It's and like, perfect it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Here's five images that are right for your gym because they're people doing things in, you know, Minnesota in the USA, not on, you know, the beach in California. It's very tonal, it's relevant and, and here it is and easy and quick, right? Yeah. So save them time and, and use a recommendation logic to give them that. That's a micro thing as opposed to, look, here's a good example. We, we've done a proprietary project with Google. Um, and <laughs> I have my problems with big tech, but occasionally they're fantastic and we work well with Google. And, and we looked at the logic of if a, if a small business wants to run an ad with Google, they've got a major, you know, generally it's quite hard knowing how to make it work. So, and, and even if you do variant testing on a Google ad, it takes uh, Google five to 10 days to do that and come to the point where it's optimized and performing well. So we built a proprietary solution, take your best piece of content from all of your social channels and turn it into a high performing Google ad. We deliver the audience settings, the, the, the general piece of content, the overview and all the micro components for geo-targeting and help Google fast track that by cutting away some of the variant testing and get to high performance faster. So better performing ad because we know it worked with your audience and we knew how it was going to work uh, and drove through in terms of delivering a better outcome for Google as well. So end up with a customer that's happy with their Google ad because it performed better than it would have if they tried to do it again. And they spend more as part of the process. They do, and hopefully drive sales better, right? You. Yes, you. Are you intrigued by this episode? If so, go to our footer on the website, N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com, neural.com. We're going to give you an insight each week. It's going to be on business, marketing, or a topic that we covered in the episode at all. We'd love your support, and it would help us in developing the intellect around this series, but without... Uh, going on too much longer, let's get back into this episode. I, I guess I, I'd be intrigued what insights have shocked you that the tool has identified both for individual customers but for also the customer cohort at large. Shocked me. Uh, that's interesting, I suppose, because we've had a lot of time looking at the data. So, um, and I don't have many preconceived ideas because what I've learned from social is the odd things often work, right? Not the predictable things. So, um, well, may- maybe I should rephrase it as the most interesting thing that it's picked up that maybe you wouldn't have expected. Okay. Look, I think um, at, at the end of the day, so, so many things occur in a short time frame and, you know, I expected that our customers would be seeing those things and acting on them more than they did, but, but they were never coming through in terms of behaviour. And as we started to roll out recommendations that focused on that, that there was a big win generally, right? Whereas yeah, you just right. assume because you come from a, a social environment, doing social work all the time, that, that our typical customer is going to be behaving that way, but their general level of knowledge and their time to execute and their available capacity in any one day is, is never been enough to be able to do that. So 
that that's like a huge win in terms of outperforming anything they were doing before. Yeah, so the recommendation component is the thing that's blown you away the most. I guess that would make sense if you come from agency land where you're right, things can take a while to come to fruition. To have this thing provide you with something that gives great results is pretty interesting. Yeah, and you just expect that level of knowledge is the norm and it's not. So, you know, the average small business marketer, even if they think they're socially capable because they use social media, is not thinking that way, right? Mm. So, the idea of the social CRM, how much of of that has permeated into the product development today? Yeah, we haven't nailed the CRM side of it. I still crave to do that at some point, but we are down a different path because what we found is that while our customers wanted to know about, you know, individual customers, they're more consumed with the idea of being able to really calculate a return on investment. And that's really the holy grail. It's like, rather than spend my budget, could I really understand if I put $100 on this today, what would it drive in terms of sales revenue? So, and we've been... We've achieved what I call predictive ROI on a conversion metric. So we can say if you spend $50 today, you'll get an 80% conversion improvement based upon this in this particular time frame, right? Um, and we've been working through partnerships to help us extend that. And, and we've, um, we've got a range of co-selling partnerships and product integrations through partnerships, but we've just literally agreed terms on on one, which is a global solution, which is going to give us e-commerce data. So we'll, within the sort of next three to four months, maybe five to six to turn into recommendations, be, be delivering recommendations that are for X dollars, you'll deliver, you know, 10X in sales. And that's that's really the holy grail, right? It, it shifts the mindset from this is my spend or my budget to this is my investment. Yeah. And then it becomes a cash flow question, not a budget allocation question. Yeah, right? so you've a got a clear, a clear ROAS or, or near clear ROAS, which is very interesting. Huge, right? It's been forever elusive, right? And, and if you're sophisticated as a marketer, you can probably connect some of the marketing stack and get a reasonable calculation. But most SMEs have no idea. They spend money and it's, you know, some things work and some things don't. It's never with that real ROAS thinking, right? So... So I guess one of the things that I, I found interesting as someone who comes from an agency background is, and you would have gotten this as well as the positioning. I think uh, you've obviously done it well enough to raise a $20 million B round. You I clearly identified that a lot of these scheduling tools as we have are just terrible, but they don't really do much for me personally. This is just my opinion, but I find that scheduling wise, yes, there's some efficiencies, but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of stuff that, that you can get bogged down in. Um, so it almost, in a way, for some people, creates more work. I guess from your perspective, you know, positioning-wise, obviously SME focus, who are you trying to substitute? Do you think it's agencies, the current suite of apps, or something else entirely? Yeah, it's not, it's not agencies at all because most of our customers aren't aren't buying services from an agency, right? Because they think of it as prohibitive and they're not that programmed and planned generally. Uh, in many cases, where, where their first investment in marketing technology because they've sort of avoided it, right? 
because I think it's that conundrum you just mentioned. There's some fantastic scheduling tools, but if you don't know what you're doing, they don't help you do it better. They just help you do it more efficiently and you still get shitty results, right? Shitty ideas, shitty results. It's just done more efficiently. So our customers are going, well, look, you know, we've sort of seen those products and we've had a bit of a go. It didn't make us great marketers. We're looking for a, a solution that is, A, from a product perspective, centric on delivering results and measuring those for us and helping us do it and, and congruently trying to help us. I, I want to understand why it works. So our learning function is a really big part of it, right? And I think they enjoy that sort of connection between an action and a learning off the back of that because I think we realised pretty early, right, that still with that customer, the confidence in executing is still the limiting factor, right? Here's a great idea. I understand you don't know how to do it. You've never done it before. So why don't you watch this, read this, and at least have a go at it and, and start to build your confidence and therefore your capability to execute better. And so it's that combination of things, right? So, and I think, again, as a shift, right, one of those scheduling tools started back in 2012 when it was people were craving efficiency and we've just moved on and our expectations are greater. And, you know, I think there's a big trend around that, like what is the trend in marketing in the space that we're in? It's like the customer wants an answer, not a process. Yeah, so, I think I think you're 100% correct on that. Higher quality is everything at the moment because we've gone, like you said, we've gone to this era of like you just open up the fire hydrant to get as much stuff out there as possible. And now everyone, you know, it's funny. I was reading, um, actually it's here on my, it's here on my desk. I was reading this. I just finished it this week. Ogilvy on advertising. Which yeah, I, find, right. I just, I found it, it, I found it really interesting just to look at some of the old advertising books and to see the different decades and how media changed throughout them. And I find that it's very similar to the, the 70s, the late 60s, early 70s now where all of a sudden there was just TV and then cable was coming along. I'm actually reading John Malone's book or biography at the moment about uh, cable cowboys, which is yeah, really right. interesting. Yeah. And um, you're right. Like there's just... We found that as an agency, the best focus can be on that, that strategy insight component simply because there's just so much stuff on that, uh, on, on everything now. So how do you get cut through? Yeah. And you need platforms like yours to understand that as a small business owner. So I think you're absolutely right. I think we're heading into a decade of smarter decisions rather than more decisions. Yeah. If that I, makes sense. It, I think it's time. It's that great old analogy like quality, not quantity. You, you could be lazy and do quantity and and it would get you traffic, but people aren't buying that anymore as a general they see consumer. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. so they want, they want to connect with brands that truly understand who they are and what they mean and why they're different and what they stand for and, and they can communicate that, right? So, you know, the evolution of our... Um, product is to help a brand understand the things that make a difference, cut away the rest of the noise and do and repeat the things that their customers really connect with, right? So, yeah. And da da data is the answer, and but data is not fun. So how do we make that fun? Yeah. Cut through the crap of looking at data and help them really understand the, the, the opportunities that present themselves. Part, part of your go-to market has been, I think one thing I identified was the, the the distribution partners, so Optus, Google, um, there's obviously a rev share component to that as well. You've had the raise, you've passed COVID with flying colors in a way because you were growing. I, I think 
the last time I read, you had something like twenty six thousand customers. Um, I don't know what percentages pay, but I, I'm ass- I'm assuming based on the growth during COVID, that those numbers have changed as well. How does this go from a cool tool used by those small businesses in the know versus the generic brand name for SME marketing? How does this get to Salesforce? if that makes sense, in terms of a, a, an office-type name. Yeah, it's an interesting conundrum. I think that most SaaS um, you know, founders sort of you know, work on. I suppose we're using our direct-to-market and we're growing that, and, yes, we've got resources to grow that and we're growing at our marketing function and our content team and starting to scale that overseas and do all the things that you should. But partners is really the leverage opportunity for us. So, you know, at the end of the day, we, we focused on partners where they have, they're looking for a value proposition, they have a large SME customer base, and they're looking for a, a reason to firstly, help them be more successful. And secondly, you know, increase the frequency or the cadence of the conversation they have with them. So Optus was a good one, 435,000 SME customers in Australia. Um, we're, we're sort of leveraging that into a relationship with Singtel to work on Southeast Asia. Um, we've got a partnership with Intuit in Australia and we're currently working on launching with them in the US. So it's 250,000 SMEs in Australia, 3.2 million SMEs in the US. Um, we've just uh, just reached a partnership with Fiverr, which hasn't been formally announced, so there's a bit of a scoop. But again, 2.3 million SMEs globally and uh, 850,000 freelancers globally uh, we have now access to. Um and there's three or four others and another very big one that we've reached terms on, but we haven't signed a contract with yet, which is literally without going over the top, like 20 million plus SME customers. And we're also making great progress in the US in the MLM market as well, which is a direct to market for us. We've got a, um, an MLM called Party Light, which basically is, a, they're traditionally a party business. They sell candles through parties and dealers, 8,000 dealers across America. Guess what? You can't do parties in America anymore. <laughs> so they've all got to transition to digital. So yeah, right. we're working with them to help all of their dealers become digital marketers. So there's 8,000 new customers and there's several of those lining up off the back of those sorts of conversations to also transition their traditional sales funnel and dealership networks into the digital environment, become good digital marketers, right? How much of the team is in Australia versus overseas? Is it majority Australia? Majority Australia. We've only got a little bit overseas. We've got COO based in the US in Atlanta, but we're setting up a, de- a team in Denver. That's right. And we're also yeah. setting up a team in, in uh, Singapore just to support the partnerships and nurture it and grow localised content creation, et cetera. So do, do you see, like I guess COVID would have um, hindered a lot of that, but do you see the team specifically in Denver growing more than, say, here in Singapore? Where does that sort of next stage of growth in the team come from in particular? Still very Australian-centric because all of our product and technology is built in Australia. We we have a small um, data team in Dakar, but generally we're going to keep building the product in Australia. We're an Australian business and we do all of our marketing and content driven out of here. So that will continue to grow and has been. But certainly the US will grow because it's such a big market for us, right? And Eventually, Southeast Asia will become a huge market. There'll be, uh, by next year, there'll be about 200, and, uh, the estimates are 205 million SMEs globally. 
150 million of those are in Southeast Asia, but they're more micro businesses and less mature in terms of digital. So it's a future market for us, but in time, it'll be the major part of the market for us. So Yeah. And getting to that market, is it about having on the ground presence? Is it about translation of product to be native for that audience or is it something else in particular? Um, a little bit of everything, but certainly translation of product, right? And an adaptation of product because those SMEs work differently to, let's call them more developed markets where they're more rational and they're thinking about digital marketing. So there's a lower level of maturity and even skills. It's interesting, like there's 150 million SMEs by next year across Southeast Asia, 97% of them have no ad or marketing technology. And there simply aren't the skills to be able to solve that problem, agencies or anywhere, right? So it is a technology solution that will only solve it. So It's very interesting. I, I'm curious when, I mean, I guess you asked this in the AFR article, when does the idea of, I know that listing is a part of the long-term story for Menergy, but where do you see that on the, the time horizon? Are there things that you want to knock off before that happens? Yes. I mean, I think that's always the case, right? It's, a, it's always a question of numbers. What is the right time? It's a question of shareholders because you want to accommodate their requirement to reach a liquidity event. Um, and it's a question of what's the right time for the product and business as well, because you do cede a bit of control when you transition from private to public and you become more, you know, open to scrutiny, et cetera, I suppose, but that's a natural evolution in the business. But the other core thing and the reason why it is interesting, and I think it's a traditional path perhaps, but we are building a whole bunch of product partnerships with organisations that we consider best in class. We don't own that technology, so there's an element of risk for us, and the, most of them are actually still small private. So there's an opportunity if we were to, to lead with a, a raise, then we'd have a, a liquid script solution and we consolidate those guys, give them you know tenure and long-term plans for their business and take control of the IP and add the revenue and everybody is a winner, right? So there's benefit and logic in that for us as well because we just risk. Well, that, that then I can see the longer-term growth from listing listing is vertical integration is is bringing on board these as part of the metagy business and expect you know things that tesla and the likes have done really really well yeah totally and the common sense for us is i think as an agency owner you would understand like the the issue off the back of doing you know row as calculations etc is that it's still about connecting the martech stack and most of our customers really struggle with that. So if you can help them connect that marketing stack and make it a consistent, congruent experience, it's a little bit like Salesforce, but for SMEs at an affordable logical scale because you're bringing all of those data sources into a recommendation engine and ultimately becoming truly agnostic. A dollar on this channel compared to a dollar on this channel will give you this much return. So there's benefit in doing that, not just because we're solving a technical issue that frustrates our customer, but ultimately, all that data into a recommendation engine is an incredibly powerful position to be in, right? So who are the people, when you think about leaders in specifically MarTech and SaaS, who do you really respect? I mean, you have to. I think you have to be respectful of, you know, the HubSpot guys that built an incredible business. I'm not a lover of the product, but 
Um, you know, that that's a personal thing and I'm not an enterprise marketer, but I, I love what they did. They really made SaaS in marketing technology, you know, viable and global and logical, right? So I think Sprout Social probably have done a bit more of a finessed approach to the product itself and, and they've built a pretty credible business, um, you know, Hootsuite and, and uh, you know, I think more than just the CI, but the, the early team at Hootsuite carved out the logic of what you could do and maybe they just got a bit confused and lost along the way, which is not, not a reflection because it, they were early in the market and made a bunch of decisions. And then once you've done that, it's hard to sort of move on to the next wave. Um, you know, there's, there's two or three guys in Albert AI, which is an Israeli group, which is sort of doing what we're doing for an enterprise level customer really brilliant in terms of the way they've gone about building a product and, and, you know, again, really able to see the AI opportunity in marketing technology early on. So, um, and built a great business off the back of that. There's numerous questions that you get in a lot of these interviews. Um, I, I was curious, what's the question that you wish you got asked more that you feel that you could talk about for ages or gets missed by a lot of people? Um, I think a burning thing for, from my perspective is, uh, you know, just the, the thought that MarTech product builders go through and, and the, just the entire sort of human-centric design philosophy because if you look at, say, I'm, I'm a, a lover of Apple in many ways. I'm obviously having a frustrating experience with them at the moment trying to get our app live, but, you know, that's a, a big tech story that everybody's got one of those. But generally I love their, like they're so human-centric with their design, right? And they've taught us all to expect that, you know, the, the technology will adapt to the way we want to live and do things and most business software doesn't do that. It's product designers deciding what experience you're going to have and that's what they deliver for you. And so I really see an evolution in marketing technology, uh, marketing software that becomes, you know, the marketer-centric, like we'll let you work the way you want to work, not the way we make you work. And that that's a huge opportunity, I think. And I don't see much happening in that or much talk about that in business software design. But to, to me, it's just a we're already moving towards that because it's obvious that the consumers want to work a particular way and we're being taught to expect that that's okay. So we're trying to move ahead of the curve, but nobody talks about that. So Yeah, that, that is interesting. I mean, when you think about most of the software and SaaS that we use, it is it can be really complex. And particularly when you have to onboard and this becomes a major feature of what you're doing, it's, it's, it's to be honest, a pain in the ass. And, and it's all there, right? So we're, we're trying to do a solution where all the power is there, but only as you want to discover and use it, right? Because if you're learning how to market, you don't need all that. It's actually just damn confusing, right? Mm. You want to do a few things well, and when you've mastered that, hey, here's a few more things that you could try and do that would improve your performance or extend the opportunities you have on a particular channel. Do you want that new feature? Yes, okay, turn it on and away you go giving the power back to the user to work at a pace that they want to work at in a way that they want to work and even being able to do stuff non-linear, right? Do, when you create an ad, do you want to go one, two, three, four, five, or do you want to just do three and come back and do one and two and four and five later, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a very, very good point. I'd never really thought about that. I don't know why. I, I've, I've just, I'm thinking about an experience I've had in the last fortnight 
yeah. particular, not app, but um, system. And yeah, it's always really complex and you have to intuitively get to know the platform itself and each platform itself has its own quirk. And uh, you're right. I think Apple has really made people expect those little things that matter. I want to jump into some rapid fire questions to finish things off. Okay. Um, what does your morning and evening routine look like? Morning, I, oh, well, I, I sort of do a session with a personal trainer three days a week to try and stay fit. Don't know how that doesn't always work, but and, and then I try and get a swim and a coffee and then get into the day. And, and late night is these days tech entrepreneur. It's calls to the UK, calls to the US at all hours. So it invariably is invaded by trying to run a global business, right? So, yeah. So daily call. Do you ever get time to sort of um, chill and watch Netflix or anything like that? Yeah, I do. I try and fit something in. It's not as often as I would like, but you've got to find some time for yourself, right? Or you get insane. So, what have you been watching of late? What's been your pick of choice um, during the last year? Uh, Really, oddly enough, enjoyed the Queen's Gambit on Netflix. Ah, yeah, very. It was really clever. I'm not a chess player. I should. I used to, but you know, I just enjoyed the whole you know psychology of it, and and you know, women taking on men in that really you know male environment. So. Yeah, it's really good. Um, it's a good series, very good series. Yeah, it was really good. Somehow, I found uh, I don't know why, but um, I've been watching clips from math. I hate reality TV, but I don't know what it is. But the permeation of maths being everywhere in oh, the zeitgeist no. is just I can't escape it at the moment. And my partner, she's not into it either, but you know, it's one of those things that we've found. So we've tried to find some TV shows to get away from it all. Um, last question for you, best purchase under $200 in the last year. Um, a, fi- a, a new fishing rod. Um, oh yeah. And, and not so much because it was a great fishing rod. Just my, It's got me out more with my son. We've been fishing a few more times. So, you know, it's those little things where you go, like, oh, I've, I've bought him that for Christmas and I've got one. And, and you know, he's, he's 18, so it's still about finding stuff. He loves fishing. I love fishing. So we've just been out doing it more, right? So What have, what have you guys been catching? Uh, a bit of broom, a bit of flathead, a um, bit of snapper and stuff. Never enough nice. is the right answer, right? So <laughs> Yeah, I mean uh- – uh, I love sea- seafood, Greek uh, island background, family loves seafood. Yeah. I never got into fishing. I don't know why. But I have many friends, like, you know, with the Greek background, they go s- fishing for squid at night. Oh, yeah. The bay is like the thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That's huge. Yeah, it's a massive thing. I describe um, it as forced meditation, right? So. It, it is actually when I think about it. Like my hobby is bonsai and I, I find that more than anything, it just gets me off a screen for hours on end. Like you can't start a task when you've got a, a bonsai tree and it can't, it's never like a five minute thing. You've got to take like a good hour plus exactly. to do, to fix it up. So a labor of love, right? Yeah. So. And you, and it's never ending as well. So you're never done. And uh, that's what I need. Cause otherwise I just sit on, you know, I, if I can, I'll just sit on emails or phone or whatever. Okay. Um, so. Very, very tempting. David, thank you so much for coming in. Where can people find you and Metigy on the interwebs? Uh, it's Metigy.com, so it's pretty straightforward, M-E-T-I-G-Y.com, um, and best to reach me on LinkedIn, David Fairful, um, with two L's. So hit me up there or david.fairful at Metigy.com. Awesome. We'll link all of those in the show notes as well. Uh, David, 
Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Jordan. Really enjoyed it. Have a great day. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. If you do like it, please subscribe. And of course, like if you're watching the YouTube video as well. Uh, We'd really appreciate that. You can also find our Clips channel in the description. For audio, if you're not already listening, you can search Uncommon on Pocket Cast, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts quite easily. For video, if you're not watching, you can search Uncommon on YouTube. And for behind-the-scenes takes and clips uh, on social media, then definitely check out at Uncommon underscore show on Instagram. But otherwise, look, thanks so much for tuning in. And until next time, thanks for listening. From Medigy, you've just listened to Forward Thinking. Again, I'm Darren, and Medigy hopes we helped you find more insights and tips into your business. To find out more about Medigy and get a listener-exclusive three-month free trial, visit us at medigy.com forward slash podcast. And while you're there, go and check out some more episodes. If you like what you heard, please share a link to another business owner or marketer who you think could get something from this. Also, to help us out, it would be great if you left a five-star review on your favorite podcast app. Last, never miss another episode by following or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast player. See you on the next episode. Managing.